you're in a hurry and you're going to get something. It kind of tastes like it's cheese. Okay, I'm okay with it. Dodge this. I am the father. I'm here on a mission of mercy. There's only one God, man. And I'm pretty sure he doesn't dress like that. Let's put a smile on that face. I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Open the pod bay doors, huh? I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Welcome to the real world. This is episode 125 of the Movie Bite Podcast, where we talk about movies, movie reviews, movie news, trailers, and more. This episode is being converted to those digital bits and ready to stream to you on this fine Tuesday, February the 3rd, 2015. I'm TJ, your host, and joining here with me today is a man with a particular set of skills. I think he has a Swiss Army knife that lets him record podcasts. It's Joe Darnell. That was your best intro, TJ. That was the best. You think it was? So, uh, so we're done here? Put a stick of fork in it? It's done? That was That's the best right. intro I've ever done? We cannot go any further. <laughs> oh, man. I, I have no... I have nothing to say about this movie. So, um, in fact, what you had to say about me was better than the film itself. So, thank you, TJ, for making uh, that, that all that, worthwhile. That, Mm, that that might be, but we're we're kind of letting the cat out of the bag early. But that that may very well <laughs> oh, be. Which is kind of why the cat out of the bag. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of why I've padded the uh, the oh, yeah? uh, episode outline with a few more links than usual because I just don't know what I have to say about this film. I was well, afraid you're that might take happen. all of this out in post. Oh yeah, it, it never happened. We'll, it, we'll just we'll take it all out. Joe, I uh, I made a mistake last week, and you corrected me after the show. You did not. I, I did it like twice. I think you did not correct me during the show. I kept saying that you were editing your podcasts in Logic Pro, and you finally pointed out to me that uh, the new version of GarageBand actually actually looks a lot like Logic Pro, but is in fact not. Oh right. Oh, see, so you're just trying to point out my shame. No, no. Well, I was trying to point out my flaw. I suppose at the same time it points out your shame. I just didn't realize GarageBand uh, looked like Logic Pro now. I remember it used to look all wooden and things last time I used it. And uh, I, did, I did compare the screenshots to Logic Pro, which I'm recording this episode in right now. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I can see the differences now that I have them side by side. But mm. uh, Yeah, the newer GarageBand looks more like the iOS 6 podcast app or something. Mm. It's trying to uh, bridge the gap, as they say. It's trying to be all things to all people. The newbies can feel right at home there. Well, I think when you finally, uh, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? When you finally make the leap and you start using Logic Pro, you will feel pretty comfortable because it looks, I don't know how it feels as far as the feel of it, you know, because all software has a certain feel when you're work actually working in it, but it certainly looks a lot like Logic Pro. So it does. You need to make it's the leap, a man. Lo- Logic Junior. <laughs> but that's not what we're here to talk about today. Uh, people, no, this isn't a podcast about podcasts. No, this this is this is not one of those. Um, this is a podcast about movies, in fact. But in order to talk about movies, sometimes we have to branch out a bit and talk about books. There was a pretty huge announcement today, Joe. They're the same thing, right? Ah, well, um, <laughs> there was a pretty big announcement today, Joe. Um, do you know who Harper Lee is? I do now. 
You do now. You say that like you didn't know before. Who doesn't – who – if you don't know who Harper Lee is out there in the audience, I want you to email info at moviebyte.com and let me know because I don't – I mean, how do you not know who Harper Lee is? Harper Lee wrote the wonderful book, To Kill a Mockingbird. Please tell me, Joe. P- Joe, Joe, please tell me you've read To Kill a Mockingbird. I saw the movie twice. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. Wait, well, TJ, it, it, it's like the only book you've ever read, so of course you think it's wonderful. <sighs> no, it's certainly not. I used to be oh, quite okay. the bookworm before I became oh, an adult okay. and had responsibilities. Uh, <laughs> I actually became more of a bookworm after marriage and responsibilities. Interesting. It's just been just the opposite for me. It's, in fact, one of the things that, my, that I'm really disappointed with in my adult life is that I don't get to read more. Uh, because I'm too busy watching movies. <laughs> um, uh, but now, no, so, it, now, if they had made a movie about Harper Lee, I would have known about it. So Okay, well, uh, Harper Lee wrote the novel To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, and uh, originally, okay, so let, let me just go ahead and read this story. So the, the headline, this is the Washington Post, and the headline says, Harper Lee is to publish a sequel to To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, F. F. Scott Fitzgerald famously claimed there is no, there are no second acts in American lives, but Harper Lee is out to prove him wrong. The beloved author will publish her second novel this summer. Go set a watchman was was written more than fifty years ago, before her Pulitzer Prize winning classic To Kill a Mockingbird, but it was never published. In a statement released this morning, the eighty eight year old author explained that when she was just starting off, she wrote Go Set a Watchman about a woman nicknamed Scout who returns home to Maycomb to visit her father, Atticus. After reading the manuscript, her editor asked her to rewrite the story from the point of view of Scout as a child. I was a first-time writer, Lee said, so I did as I was told. The result was To Kill a Mockingbird, a novel that has sold 40 million copies since it was first published in 1960. The original story, Ghost Set a Watchman, was forgotten. I hadn't realized it had survived, Lee said, so was surprised and delighted when my dear friend and lawyer... Tanya Carter discovered it. After much thought and hesitation, I shared it with a handful of people I trust and was pleased to hear that they considered it worthy of publication. So that's the that's the essential story there. And I I'm very interested in this and, and I did not know. I maybe this makes me a bad fan of the book. I did not know. Maybe maybe it wasn't known, I don't know. I did not know that, that she originally wrote the sequel first, and then they asked her to rewrite it from Scout's point of view as a child. That's that's pretty uh that's that's pretty incredible. Uh, and, and yet, To Kill a Mockingbird is one of my – I would easily put it in one of my top ten books. Of course, a lot of the people are going to criticize the publisher uh, just for being greedy to squeeze another book out of her and no. take advantage of the situation. But I I think that that's a highly overblown cynicism in this I, case. I, I think have it's not... probably really well worth it if for nothing else – for the fans to understand more of the story and to get more from this author because this is the only book she's ever written. I have not seen a negative word about this at all. And I, it, it, it came out uh, this morning at about, oh, I don't know, was it nine thirty ten Central Time? Well, then you need to stop reading the internet, TJ, or you will find some negative. Oh, I'm sure it's out there. But I mean, every single person that I saw talking about this was like, oh, my word, mind blown. I can't wait to read this book. It's going to be amazing. So that's it is the, awesome. Yeah, that's going to be. And the if you haven't sentiment. seen the movie, you should go watch it. TJ, you have seen the movie, right? I have. Okay. The movie does not quite do the book justice. It's fine, but it's you know, the the book is so much better. It's you know the book. That's what I hear. 
I, I'll take your word for it. I can't believe you've never read To Kill a Mockingbird. I read did you, it. Did you have to read it for school, or did you read it for you know reasons like peer pressure, or no, did you no. just like find um, so, yourself you know, crippled? I don't you know, know. I was in I a was car a, accident, and you didn't have anything to do for six months, so you read To Kill a Mockingbird. No, I was a happen? voracious reader as a as a kid, uh, and so I just read it. It was one of the books that I read. Uh, I was probably. 9, 10, 11, and I've read it more than many, many, many more times than once. It was one of the books that I would always come back to and read again. So you went to the third grade reading material section of the library and you got To Kill a Mockingbird. And uh, you, you just read it as a fer- voracious kid. And then you got the book on tape with I, the I, little I, jingles where I do. The page no, I do. No, 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 no. I do actually have uh, it as a book on uh, uh digital um tape if you will uh boy who who read that um it was somebody uh uh sissy something sissy spacek i don't know if that's how you say that or not she she read spacek yeah she read the book um at least the one that i have so yeah i mean it's uh it's a fantastic book and i'm 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 kind of excited at the same time i just don't see how it can be as good because the thing that makes to kill a mockingbird classic is everything about it like like the the age of scout uh you know and her older brother jeremy and uh you know just the time in which it was set and the story and the the you know that's what makes it good is the story it tells about racism in the 30s Mm -hmm. so i just don't know how this is going to be any good and yet it is harper lee and it was written at the same time so she was in the same frame of mind so maybe it will be really good Mm. you know it brings to mind that other authors have similar stories they've written uh, stories from the vantage points of different characters and have some overlapping prequel and sequel material and so this has been a tried and true uh, novelization formula before so it's it's not unheard of what's unheard of is that uh, we still have a great author like harper that is still around to execute on getting this published you know i didn't realize that she was alive and well so this is really good news and it's nice to have some good news here at the beginning of 2015 yeah to kill a mockingbird was originally published in 1960 isn't that crazy and now the sequel is getting published well what's really unheard of is that the book has been sitting around collecting dust for all this time oh i I know that's that is the the unfathomable part i mean how many inventions do you know of how many authors filmmakers or anybody who just sits on their work like this and doesn't publish it i have this one uh, second cousin it kind of reminds me of but it's still it's just unheard of it's it, this is a real rare treat. Yeah, no, it's I'm I'm definitely looking forward to see how this how this works and and what that original novel that she wrote looks like cuz she wrote it before. So, uh that that will be very interesting. And and that will make me wonder like did she ever anticipate like oh, I better make this fit, you know, with what I wrote before when she wrote to kill a mockingbird or will there be inconsistencies and that sort of thing. So that that will be very interesting. That is interesting. a very good question. Yeah. So, Looking forward to it very much, and no doubt this is going to spark uh, a new series of films on these two books. I would, I would guess, but who knows? Maybe not. But I would, I would, I would be interested to see what To Kill a Mockingbird would look like with today's technology. Obviously, the original is four by three, black and white. Gregory Peck, um, you know, you cannot replace the Peck. That's true. It would be very hard to do, and he really was perfect as Atticus. I mean, really, that movie is actually pretty good. It's just not as good as the book. Um. I'm I'm looking was there who else was was there anybody else in that in that uh, film that we would know 
Mm, not that I know of. I, I remember seeing some of the other actors in older films, but uh, not so uh, memorable that I that their names stuck with me. Oh, it, it's a great oh, film. Though. Oh, Brock Peters was in this film. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Who's yeah. Brock Peters? Brock Peters. Uh, I know him from Star Trek, but he's been in some other things. He um, he was an admiral in the, the movies. Um, that is too weird, sir. Yeah, uh, he, and he was he also played Captain Sisko's father in the Star Trek Deep Space Nine, uh, and he's been in some other things. Robert Duvall was in this film as Boo Radley. Um, oh, that is so weird. That is weird. I, I I I'm picturing Boo Radley in my mind now, and I did not. I would not have guessed that was Robert Duvall. I I remember it now that I see it. I'm like, oh yeah, I do remember noting that last time I watched it. But yeah, I think I remember hearing that a few years ago too. It just doesn't stick because you're right. You don't think of Robert Duvall. Yeah, and and Brock Peters was Tom Robinson. So, mm. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we should move on. Um, and Joe, this is yes. also exciting news. I'm a fan of Honest Trailers, as I think you are. Are you? Oh, not? we're getting the Honest Trailers for the How to Kill a Mockingbird or to Kill a Mockingbird. <laughs> sure. No, this is the Honest Trailer for the Lego Movie, and this is one of those trailers where it feels like they just don't have anything bad to say about the movie, and so they make stuff up. But uh, here it is, and all its <laughs> yeah, <laughs> here it is in all its glory. Based on a toy franchise with no story or defined characters, comes a feature-length commercial full of celebrities, cliches, and repetitive pop music. That's really sweet and heartfelt. Huh. Didn't see that coming. The Lego Movie. That was from the, just a short little clip from the Honest trailer for the Lego Movie. Uh, they, I mean, yeah, it was, I had fun watching it. I remember it made me want to go back and watch the Lego Movie again, and usually Honest trailers are like, really down on the movie so uh i'm sure you have some things to say about it joe you you're a big fan of the lego movie oh yeah and and this this honest trailer is as close as it gets to any form of criticism of the film and perhaps the the most interesting point of criticism is how it wasn't well received by the oscars and yeah it's something and i have to think that the the judges are probably a bit wary of the fact that it has so many pop culture references that they think it cannot be taken seriously or critically. <sighs> this doesn't make any sense to me. And and so, you're right because what they're what they're highlighting in the best of animated film category are films that nobody knows about or cares about. And I mean, no offense to those foreign films that were scrounged up and. The, I mean, even the likes of How to Train Your Dragon 2 deserves a little bit of attention. Um, I don't think movies like Big Hero 6 deserve to be compared to the level of quality of the Lego movie, though. And and part of the reason for this is that the Lego movie has lots of cultural references. That that doesn't make their job easier, though. Right, right. What they did is they they gave them such a fresh spin that we haven't seen very often where it's so consistently awesome throughout the <laughs> entire film. Everything is awesome. And I mean, like, that was sort of the metaphor of the movie. I mean, I mean, a lot of people are looking at the commercialism or the communism or whatever kind of ism you want to find in yeah, this film. Yeah, whatever. It's, it's there, but I, I think that there was so much good material for kids and adults, so... Joe, will, will watching the Lego the movie make jokes. my kids communists? <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. Maybe if your kids were communists when they started watching it. <laughs> uh, 
yeah so check out the honest trailer for the lego movie um it's in it's in the show notes obviously which are at moviebyte.com slash mb podcast slash one two five where they always are always always are uh, the episode number just, it's impressive how you have that just on the top of your head tj every week yeah i can't quite do the federico vitici uh italian show notes but uh you know <laughs> inside baseball sorry uh moving on (laughs) speaking of lego speaking of lego we have a three thousand piece shield helicarrier uh from the avengers i want one of these so bad but it costs 400 or 350 bucks joe but i want one of these so much this makes me want to go back to playing with legos and and you're a lego vip so you're you can get yours on february 17th right uh sure uh yeah i mean i'm 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 there i'm I've, if i had 350 bucks burning a hole in my pocket you better believe i'd have this um if we if you were picking between the apple watch and the lego oh helicarrier, the helicarrier we, we the lego helicarrier have. wins every time no no, no question about it so jermaine this year over the at slash, the, the uh, uh what is it the addition edition you get you get to get the edition edition helicarrier <laughs> sure <laughs> i don't know what that means but um jermaine lucier over at slash film is the one that reported this he says that lego has just announced that their most massive epic marvel set ever it's the shield helicarrier uh a 2,996-piece behemoth of a set featuring many figures of Nick Fury, Black Widow, Captain America, Hawkeye, and Maria Hill. The helicarrier hits shelves on in March and will retail for $349.99. And then he says below, see a bunch of images and more info about the uh, LEGO Avengers helicarrier. This thing looks absolutely awesome. Perhaps my favorite part Everything is, is awesome. This, yeah. <laughs> you know this is going to be in the next LEGO movie. They could oh, have a whole movie on this this helicarrier. Sure, absolutely. I would be surprised if it wasn't um, in the next Lego movie. At least a my nod fa- to it. And my favorite part is just the stand for this thing, which is built out of, you know, probably a hundred Lego pieces on its own. And it has like a little plate for it to describe it like it's a landmark or a historical. It says know, Avengers uh, Helicarrier, configuration dual seaworthy and airborne aircraft carrier, length 1486 feet, width 970 feet, propulsion vertical takeoff landing system with four turbofan engines, etc. So, yes, this is the plaque you're referring to. Continue. Not a flying toy. <laughs> Oh man, this is awesome. This make this brings out the kid in me, Joe. I, you know, I, I know we talked about this when we reviewed the Lego movie, but my favorite toys growing up as a kid were Legos, um, or Lego blocks. However you say that. I always call them Legos, whatever. I know you're not, I know Lego is not supposed to be pluralized. Lego TJ. Yes. Yes. I, I do know the proper way to say it, but it doesn't sound right to me. Anyway. Do Do you drink Coke or do you drink Cokes? Um, well, if I have more than one, I drink drink Cokes, but I don't drink Coke, so it's not good. <sighs> Pepsi, I, I will I will drink a Pepsi if I have what? to, yeah, but not Coke. Oh, I, I'm, but I'm not a big fan of Pepsi. You're going down, either. man. I'm you're not a talking... big fan of Pepsi either. I, I prefer uh, something like a uh, a Mountain Dew or a or a you know, but but I'm avoid I avoid soda. It's bad for me. I live in Coca Cola country. Oh and my you're gosh, on, you're on thin ice, bro. <laughs> I'm sorry, the ice broke. I'm I'm moving on. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, when I was a kid, though, Joe, this is where I was going with this. I didn't have these fancy sets. I don't know if they existed or my parents just never. But I don't remember noticing all the big fancy sets. I just well, had a, Lego had, had not yet, you know, franchised merchandise. Yeah. all of the movie properties. Yet. I had a bunch of Legos though, or Lego blocks. 
<laughs> Lego they toys the, and bricks. The spaceships, the uh, sea vo- I mean, they had a, I remember them having a few things, but I was never like, ooh, ooh, look, the helicarrier. I got to have that. There's nothing ever like that. It was like, oh, it's oh, kind of a cool set. But really? See, mostly, yeah, that's the way I felt about the pirate ships. I mm. loved their pirate ships. See, I never, cared I never for had one. Uh, the thing about Lego to me was building cool things. And this is a cool thing to build, so I'm definitely in. But like to me, like Where I would you, build you any- You would call a master builder? Yes, I was a master Lego builder. I built all sorts of things out of my Legos. I had this big, huge tub of Lego. Mm. Uh, yes, this is bringing back memories from my childhood. This is the Lego bite. Well, if you ever get a basement, I know where to find you. <laughs> yes, I'll be in my, my mother's basement with my toy Legos. It's okay. <laughs> but Joe- Speaking yes, of the did. Avengers, uh, we, oh, nice segue! Yes, did you see how I did that? I, I almost I, forgot what yeah. we were talking about. I thought we were talking about Lego. So we were I talking that we about were Lego. Review the Lego. Movie we were talking. Again. See, but we were talking about the Lego movie, which led to the Lego Helicarrier, which is Lego. But then the, the Helicarrier is an Avengers thing, so we lead into the Avengers. See how see how smoothly this operation That's right. could, just From fits together like to the Super Bowl. I mean, naturally. Yes. So uh, the Super Bowl gave us many, many trailers, and I thought I would put just this one in here. There are many more on moviebyte.com right now if you want to go there and find them. Uh, I didn't post all of the Super Bowl trailers on moviebyte.com because a lot of them are just meh. But this one uh, was also a bit meh, and that's that's disappointing. Was it the best TV spot of the entire bowl? No, no, not not at all. Okay. Um, but I, that's the impression I got. It's the Avengers, so we have to talk about about it a little. So uh, here is the Avengers Super Bowl TV spot. This world needs something more powerful than any of us. Trouble always comes around. Ultra in the flesh. I'm gonna tear you apart from the inside. That was a little better than I remembered, uh, and now I'm reading through my post. Maybe I was thinking of a different trailer. Um, it, it, it still, I I wasn't as impressed with it as I have been with previous uh, Avengers trailers. Uh, what what did you think, Joe? Yeah, they can reheat that one and put it on public radio. You know, it just sound it just sounds like it's got a couple of sound bites from uh, several big names in the cast, and then you get the little ditty, the special piece of "There are no strings on." Me. There are no strings on. Which is apparent was apparently uh, originally an Ultron uh, tune. You know, yeah, Pinocchio the, got it from Ultron. Let's be let's be clear here. That's right. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I, I don't think that this trailer really did anything for me. This TV spot, it, it, it felt rushed. It felt like it was just trying to That's say the nature of a hey, thirty hey, second hey, spot. Don't forget us. Don't forget us. We're here still. Yeah. We're we're coming. To a theater near you. But that's that's always the nature of thirty second spots, especially Super Bowl, you know, thirty second or sixty second spots, is that they're just very rushed. I mean, that, so you expect that. But I was uh, just a it little. It didn't really feel necessary, yeah. to be honest. It, it doesn't. It did not make me look forward well, to the film. Anymore. Here's here's the thing, though. The Super Bowl spots are about getting a, a reaching a broader audience and letting them know. Like I think it accomplished that purpose. Like people watching the Super Bowl, and you believe me, I, I don't. You did you watch the Super Bowl? 
Nope. I didn't either. I think we're the only two people in the world that don't, though. Did did you do you know what happened? I don't even know what happened. Uh, apparently, some guy threw a ball and some guy fumbled a ball, and then there was uh, lots of sports ball, and then some team won, and then a lot of people accused them of cheating, and it sounded pretty typical. Mm. <laughs> and did they have referees this game? Yes, but I, as as usual, the referees made bad calls. Oh. I, I don't no, even know why okay. they continue employing mm. these referees that are always making bad calls from what I can tell. <laughs> well, <laughs> speaking of referees, no, uh, back to Tron, Ultron. Uh, I, I, I think that uh, th- this spot had one thing going for it that the others did not. And that was you got to see a little bit of performance coming through from the CGI face of the Incredible Hulk. Yeah, that was something we didn't see in the other spots. He was just the the big green rage monster in the other TV trailer or the, the other trailers. Yeah, I mean, I think the other trailers focus more on his emotion through his hand uh, gesture, hand waving. Yeah, the thing with with uh, Black Widow or whatever. Hulk smash. Uh, but yeah, this definitely gave us more of his face, and it definitely also gave us new shots from the Hulkbuster fight. Um, so that will be yeah. That, I mean, th- th- those things are interesting to me. And and overall, I'm still pretty excited about this film. And 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 you got to remember too, this film is uh, preceding the film titled Captain America: Civil War. And I think that Age of Ultron is going to be setting up a lot of stuff that leads right into that. So um, I, I think the Marvel universe is definitely headed for some uh, rough waters in terms of the story. Not not in terms of like oh they're doing not in terms of quality. Not yeah. in terms of quality or that we're not going to like it. I'm just saying like in terms of the storyline. Yeah, like if uh, we're, we're headed in some a- rapids. If you want a fair comparison to something else you've already seen and probably know very well, then just think of it as the next two or three films are expected to be the Empire Strike Backs of the Marvel film franchise. Yeah, we're kind of in the middle of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. There have been three phases, basically, or three parts of the Marvel Cinematic Universe defined, and we're we're headed into uh, phase three, but we're in phase two right now. You so. could write a book about this. We've talked enough about this on the show, TJ. I, I think that that's what you need to do. Yeah, I should write a book about this, shouldn't I? You probably you already wrote the book, and you just haven't told anybody, and you, it's been sitting on the shelf collecting dust for the last. Well, 50 I years. mean, because this is a digital age, I had it all typed up in my word processor, and then the computer ate it. Hmm. The, the <laughs> desk, the de- the desktop. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Speaking of really old material. Yes. Let's talk about this old material. That's <laughs> a great Scorsese. segue, Joe. Martin Scorsese. Thank you. He's trying to, or at least it is said that, he is working on a film adaptation of Macbeth with Kenneth Branagh. I think yes. that this is a pretty good idea. I just don't know what to expect about this particular adaptation, except that it's going to be a, a unique spin on Shakespeare's story, but it's going to be based on a particular adaptation that was made for for stage that apparently Scorsese, Scorsese, watched. Scorsese. Yes. Uh, I'm talking about the Birdman Scorsese. Oh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I didn't get that. It's Sorry. Going to be, it's going to be a uh, interesting take if they're going to try and follow the suit of the play, the version that, that, that Scorsese fell in love with. Yeah, I think this is going to excite people. My wife was excited about it, and she's a big Shakespeare fan, and she really loves Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet. Uh, which is kind of when I think of Kenneth Branagh. I mean, I know he's like directing superhero films and stuff now, which is just weird. But uh, and, and Jack Ryan, Shadow Recruit, and and stuff like that. But um, when I think of Kenneth Branagh, I usually do think of him in Hamlet uh, from 1996. 
Um, so he certainly is has been in this scene, and he as 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 the article says that we've linked to. Um, he, you know, this film would be based on a stage play that, uh, that Kenneth Branagh is doing of Macbeth, which obviously Macbeth is a, is a stage play to begin with. So I think it could how, be interesting. How much do we care about very classic material? Would you prefer that they update it so that you can understand the English or would you like it to be more true to the roots? See, I'm not by any means a Shakespeare uh, nut or expert or uh, nor do I have a, a, a big vast knowledge of it. I'm not a, I'm not a, as we talked about, as I talked about with J.R. Forresteros, I'm sorry, I forgot you weren't on that show. I'm not a huge fan of stage plays in general. I find some of them appealing and I like some of them, but it's not like my thing. Like movies are my thing, right? That being said, like I have enjoyed movies that were uh, in old English or that were just not um, updated, as you might say, for the modern time. But in general, in general, I'm I'm also happy usually when something is updated to be more understandable or to relate better into modern audiences. Like I'm okay with either of those. They can be done poorly. Uh, either way, they can be done poorly or they can be done well. Um, I I the, boy this, that would be and interesting. We are talking about Scorsese. Yeah, that would. I'm not sure which way more Scorsese would fall on that. He's, you know, obviously Scorsese is known for his historical adaptations of stuff like Goodfellas, um, of, of uh, The Aviator. Um, what else has he done? Boy, you, you know, that, that's the sort of thing that Martin Scorsese is known for. Go this, yeah. Well, uh, this feels like an entirely different thing. I don't know that Martin Scorsese's ever done anything like this. So. This would be very interesting. My wife was uh, definitely interested to know what's going on. I mean, she was more interested in Kenneth Branagh's involvement than Martin Scorsese. She's like, Martin who? Uh, but, um, you know, eh, Martin Scorsese is a good filmmaker mm. despite – yeah, he's a good filmmaker. So it will be interesting to see what he does with this. And I don't know – I don't know a lot about the stage play. Okay. If it's if it's based on the stage play um, – I, I don't know like what the stage play does as far as you know if it's more modern or if it uses the original English that 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 uh, that uh, Macbeth was written in. I just don't know. Do you? I don't. I mean, I, I, all I know is what I read on Wikipedia today. I have. Hey, I don't 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 criticize me too harshly here. <laughs> I am familiar with Shakespeare. I have studied a lot of his stuff, and I have seen a lot of his stuff. But uh, Macbeth is one of the more popular ones. I don't know very much about. Except that it's one of the more uh, uh, dark you know, dramas. And so it does sound interesting. Well, I think um, Macbeth and Hamlet particularly, but in general, a lot of Shakespeare plays and, and stuff tend to inspire or, or tend to um, be a basis of, of people's interest in, in the arts in general. And they, it tends to be in the background and it's very highly considered, obviously. Uh, it was uh, of the time – you know, if if there were if there were a way to talk about it, we would be talking about Shakespeare's plays if, if back in that day, right? You know, obviously it wouldn't be a podcast because the technology wasn't there. But I'm saying that's what we'd be talking about then. Now we're talking about movies, so I think it's very important to to continue, you know, to keep these arts alive in that way, or the you know, and to look back to our roots. So I am excited about this. And, and yeah, and I know that they're going to continue to make more and more Shakespeare adaptations in the future. And I, I'm more interested in this simply because that Scorsese is attached to it. That, mm -hmm. That's why it shows more promise than, say, if it were just Brana and uh, any 
you know, other Tom, Dick, or Harry out there that, that wanted to direct it. Well, you know, no matter what, that it's going to be of a really high caliber with Scorsese involved, and for that matter with Kenneth Branagh, although he's, I would say, maybe not quite as respected, and he has churned out some more questionable stuff than Scorsese. Obviously, I think the thing that I was alluding to earlier when I said, eh, he's a good filmmaker, is that I have no doubt that the quality of every film he's ever made is really high. There are just, particularly very recently, some films that I just won't see that he's made because, uh, in a different way, not good. So, <laughs> Completely valid point of view, sir. Well, speaking of good filmmaking – um, I wanted to highlight this video called The Quadrant System from Every Frame a Painting. This is the second Every Frame a Painting video that I've highlighted on Movie Byte and also here on the podcast. And uh, I, I really need to subscribe to this thing and see what more he's got. Um, I sadly have not seen the film that he is talking about, uh, Drive. Um, oh, really? Yeah. Have you seen it? I have, and it definitely turned my head because – all things considered, I don't think that the, the – it's one of those rare cases where, TJ, I honestly didn't think that the story was was interesting enough on its own to sell the, the, the making of the film. But what I think really made it work really well was the star performances, the great cinematography, the, the clear direction and focus mm. of the entire film, and the execution on the idea – but just in and of the story, it's one of those situations where it's like, well, if I were reading this uh, this synopsis, uh, the, the pitch for this film, would it deserve to be made into a film? And I'd probably say, uh, we'll put that on the iffy pile. And But then you just give it the right people and you can see what they can do with very little to go on. And it was one of those cases. So it was it, you can see that really well in this video by Tony. Yeah, and it was directed by Nicholas Winding uh, Refn. Is that how you say his name? Um, and it starred, sure. starred the likes of Ryan Gosling, uh, Carrie Mulligan, Brian Cranston, Ron Perlman, Christina Hendricks. So some some names behind there too. And uh, but just looking at this uh, video, the quadrant system from every frame of painting, I was blown away by some of the cinematography. And I know he's highlighting what makes it good. And, and a lot of times when you're watching a film, what happens? With bad cinematography, you may not necessarily be able to put your finger on it, but it's like, it's just not doing it for me. And this is one of those things where, boy, the way every shot is composed, you can tell he's put thought into it, and this just highlights the composition. I'm uh, Joe, I'm one of those people. When I was a filmmaker, I was much more m- mostly editing, but uh, we were a small film company, so I would have to be out in the field and and doing cinematography and being on set uh, and you know being out and, and, and doing the interviews and for the documentaries and stuff that we were making and things like that. I can tell. I could tell you when a show shot was well composed. I couldn't always come up with that good composition. But when it got there, you know, when the cinematographer would get there, I would go, oh, man, yes, I love that. That is very well composed. And I know exactly how that's going to work in the edit and, and all these things. Uh, so I really appreciate the craft of cinematography. I, I don't quite get it. It's just not in my nature as much as editing is. But uh, I really love this breakdown of, of what makes the cinematography and drive so good. Mm. It is definitely well worth a watch. And it's only three and a half minutes long. So if you watch oh, yeah. Drive or if you care about uh, Tony Zell's work here and how film good filmmaking works, it's really inspirational. Just when you watch this, it makes you want to go out and watch the film. It's well, a great appetite, appetizer. It makes me want to be a filmmaker again. I've obviously – I haven't talked about it much on the podcast, but I've switched careers to more web development. And uh, 
I, even though I was doing a lot of web development before, I, I basically am not a filmmaker anymore, unfortunately, even though I like doing it. This really made me want to revive my uh, editing career, at least. But mm. uh, yeah, it's it's really it's really a wonderful look at uh, cinematography. And I'm, I'm definitely going to be keeping an eye open for more of these Every Frame of Painting videos. I'm going to see – it's on Vimeo. I'm going to see if there's a way I can subscribe to – like I don't know if Vimeo has a, a channels kind of thing. Or, or an RSS feed. Yeah, probably, RSS maybe. feed would be best for me. I actually, Truly, there, there it's, are, it's the kind of thing that Vimeo would have. There is so. a hack uh, that lets that. Well, it's not a hack. It's just you got to know how to find it. There are RSS feeds for channels on YouTube, and I am subscribed to a couple of those via RSS. I'm old school, Joe. I know RSS is like the mm. old old school people don't use it anymore, but I'm very much an RSS person. All I got from that was that you're a hacker, TJ. I I I, I hacked the mainframe. Uh, and uh, <laughs> I, I went in the back door, and uh, I I uh, got in. Hmm. You uh, you do that. <laughs> well, speaking of well-crafted films. Yeah, and speaking of hackers, <laughs> hacks. Hacks, and, yes. Uh, and, and not well-crafted films. Uh, Nicolas Cage, I know this is going to be shocking to you. Nicolas Cage praised Hayden Christensen's performance. Hayden Christensen, sorry, his <laughs> performance in the Star Wars prequels. Can you imagine? <laughs> so Kevin Jagernoth over at the playlist, he says, outdoing press for his latest movie of the week, Outcast. Cage, <laughs> outdoing it, yeah. <laughs> Cage singled out his co-star Christensen's work in the Star Wars prequels while sporting the greatest hair ever. And, and this is a quote from Nicolas Cage. And so I watched George's movies and the work Hayden did with George, and I was very impressed with Hayden's short of sort of edgy, dangerous, dark, and soulful, still soulful performance, Cage explained to IGN. I thought it was superb, and I really connected with him. Drop mic, walk away. Uh, I was happier, honestly, <laughs> TJ. I was happier with the boy who played Anakin Skywalker oh. in episode one than I was with Hayden Christensen. Oh, my. I don't I'm even not, know what to say to that. I'm not saying I was happy. I'm just saying I was closer to happiness <laughs> with the little actor. <laughs> Uh, that was it's working it's working it is a thousand times better than <laughs> the performance of hayden chris how so. dare you hate on jake lloyd come on man <sighs> the, the, i i don't uh, even i just don't even know what to say how do you look at the prequels okay look you uh, you mcgregor great actor and frankly he did as good a job as he could with the material he had in star wars uh the prequels uh I don't know how, though, you look at Hayden Christensen in Star Wars and come away with, oh, he's a great actor with a soulful, soulful performance that I connected with. How do you come away with that? Did you see the same movies that I saw? I don't get it. Do you get it, Joe? I don't get it. No. <laughs> I mean, there's more hope for the this film. What is it called? Outcast? Overcast? <laughs> I don't know. Outcast, yeah. I don't With pay Hayden much Christensen attention to Nicolas Cage, Cage in general, so I don't know. All we heard was Nicolas Cage liked Hayden Christensen. That's that all I enough. heard, and I I was just blown away, though. Even still, like, I know this is Nicolas Cage we're talking about, and I was still blown away. Like, what? What? Uh, I don't know. Did you know that National Treasure 3 has been announced? Oh, dear. <laughs> Uh, I can imagine a few other films that need a three than that one. Uh, 
So let's 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 look at some of the films that, that Nicolas Cage has been in, and then maybe we can understand <laughs> why he liked Hayden Christensen. Okay, so <laughs> frankly, the original National National Treasure, while not great, was okay. National Treasure Two was a disaster. Um, all right, so he was in Left Behind. But his career has been all over the place. He, was, he has made some horrible films. He was in Ghost Rider. Some great ones. Uh, let's see. He was in The Sorcerer's Apprentice. He was in Kick Ass. Uh, I don't yeah, don't know. Look man. At the, don't look at the more recent stuff. All of that's garbage. <laughs> it is. You got to go deep. Let's see here. You got to go before The Wicker Man. You got to go to. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, go before this and that. Matchstick Man, Matchstick Man, that was okay. Here's a here's a one that looks the really good. The Family Man, the Family Man was okay. Here's one he was in that looks really good. Valley Girl. Nineteen eighty three. City of Angels, yeah, City of uh, Angels. All right, well, Meg Ryan. It's it's two of the worst hacks in the filmmaking in the film biz, uh, teaming up to to like each other's stuff. I guess it's about all you can say about that. <laughs> I, I don't know what to say. I mean, it, the guy is entitled to his opinion, but to say that he really connected with the performance of Hayden playing Anakin Skywalker turning into Darth Vader is, uh, well, that's definitely telling to say the least, because I cannot think of another soul on Earth that m- made that kind of connection. No, I certainly didn't. Yeah, I, I think most people complain it's the, one of the bigger flaws with the prequels as a whole because that was wasn't that the entire point of the prequels? We were supposed to understand why Anakin fell to the dark side, and and when it was all said and done, we were sorely lacking why he really did because it was so unbelievable. Well, I mean, and even apologists for the prequels, of which I am not, they will typically say, "Yeah, Hayden Christensen is a little bit questionable." I've never heard anybody say that his performance was amazing or that they connected with it or that it was soulful. I've that's I've never heard that before. I guess an actor will say anything in an interview to promote his movies. <laughs> sure, I guess. I don't know. And speaking of movies and actors that grossly disappoint us, DJ. Yes. Shall we talk about Taken 3? Please, please take it back again. Please. Please. Uh, you, you took all my money. I want it all back from all three of these films. So this is our review of Taken 3. Hey. Lenny. Good to see you. Me too. Kim's doing okay? Yeah, seems like the usual, Kim. Lenny! Lenny? Sir, back away now! I didn't do this. Put your hands up, now! That was from the trailer for Taken 3, out in theaters now. And it's what we're going to be reviewing today. It was released on January the 9th of this year. It had a budget of $48 million and opened uh, uh, opening weekend. It brought in $39.2 million. The worldwide gross is $244 million. This is why we keep having these films, Joe. $244 million. The critic consensus is that it is hampered by toothless PG-13 action sequences, incoherent direction, and a hackneyed plot. Taken 3 serves as a clear signal that it's well past time to retire this franchise. The director was Olivier Megaton and writers Luc Besson and Robert Mark Kamen. 
The stars of this film are Liam Neeson, Forrest Whitaker, Famke Jansen, Mag- Maggie Grace, Doug, Ru- Doug Ray Scott, Sam Spruell, and Leland Orser. The composer was Nathaniel McCallie. And Joe, why don't you tell us a little bit about this story? Hmm. Okay. Ex-government operative Brian Mills is accused of a ruthless murder he never committed or witnessed. He is tracked and pursued. Mills brings out his particular set of skills to find the true killer and clear his name. Uh, Ho-hum. Another day in the life of Brian Mills. Like this guy, everything happens to him and he always has the answer for everything. And somehow he's able to overcome uh, international uh, espionage and every kind of criminal and America itself. You know, like uh, there's no stopping him because he was in the special forces. And then beyond that, nobody knows who he was and what he did in his past. But Brian is the no man who must be able to do anything he wants Except uh, keep his family together and keep his uh, wife and daughter alive. And uh, yeah. Well, don't don't keep it bottled up, Joe. Let us know how you really felt about this film. It's bad for you to Um, bottle it up like that. Okay. Uh, First (laughs) of all, I appreciate a little backstory to the making of this trilogy. When Taken came out, I think that it was somewhat experimental. I know that they wanted to make an honest film and make a good honest day's living by having a little bit of action flair with Liam Neeson. Sure. And probably somebody had a good spec script for the original Taken. And it was exploring this idea about human trafficking. And that was something that we haven't seen much of. Mm -hmm. And certainly it has brought awareness to human trafficking with the first Taken film. that That's something that made it uh, under, more understandable to uh, the general audience, I think, which is a good thing because that is certainly an issue today that, that America needs to be uh, counteracting and many other countries. Now, the, the trick here is, is that they kind of got lucky. I mean, that's what happened. Like, they had just the right ingredients to accidentally create a pretty good dish that nobody was expecting to come about. And when everybody gave it a try, they were like, wow, this, this is better than we expected. Liam Neeson makes a great action hero. And yeah, it's got a horrible part by uh, what was her name? Grace. Maggie Grace. I didn't think she was so bad in the first film. Oh, she was way too old for the part. And she played like this giddy girl who was so happy to get a pony for her birthday. Ah, oh, it was sickening. She had already been uh, the loser of the uh, the blonde girl in the television show Lost. That character was dumb for one, but two, she was she, to be. Was, she was also older. Yeah, she was an older character than Maggie Grace was playing in Taken uh, in the first place. Mm. So it was kind of confusing, like. They didn't want to use an actress the age of the character Kim Mills because she was supposed to be underage when she was uh, caught up in human trafficking. And that would have been just wrong to put on screen. And I'm glad that they didn't go in that direction. But it still was a very jarring experience. The The mother was, uh, was somewhat predictably... Uh, you know, one-dimensionally just against everything about her ex-husband. And that that led to all of his problems, and then he had to solve all of their problems, and he did it with flying colors. 
So do you want to now talk a little bit about like what you think was going on behind the scenes when it came to Taken 2 and why they they gave themselves that movie? Well, um, yeah, I mean, I, I can probably look up the box office mojo and tell you why they made Taken 2. Taken, ah. <laughs> um, Taken, I, I feel like was a, a decent movie. I, I, I can't remember for sure, but I feel like I would rate it around three or three and a half stars. Like it's worth Ouch. seeing. Yes. Okay. See, the first film was pretty clever in that the human traffickers gave it more substance because even if Brian Mills is a very unrealistic American patriot who is also very independent minded and takes the initiative to save the world all on his own and gets away with it, uh, the, the human traffickers were very real to the world. And so that gave it more gravitas than it actually deserved. Because while Brian, the hero, was largely unbelievable, the the villains were true to life. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of the audience really related to that and appreciated just the right chemistry between the fictional and the sensational. Yeah. But then what happened with Taken 2 was they made the villain extra, extra sensational. And there really Absolutely. was no change about the bearing of Brian Mills and his daughter or his wife. And they were the same kind. They were from the exact same mold that they were in the first film. So what what deflated Taken Two for me was this notion that a member of the Russian mafia is like, you know, how dare you like go around beating up my people and killing my people, and I'm going to get my revenge on you because I have this strange criminal idea of what justice is, and so I'm going to hunt down and ruin the life of Brian Mills. Sure, it was pretty like, crazy, pretty dumb. It was so dumb, over the top, and it was like, are you kidding me? This is taken out of like a bad kids cartoon show. This is right out of uh, some silly Star Wars cartoon anyway <laughs> and that that's what, what happened and so taken two was sorely disappointing for um a chase sequence in the car where the daughter had never driven a stick before her father is telling her to uh race away in hot pursuit by other men in cars right you know and the daughter's never driven a stick before y'all in another country so she doesn't understand how the roadways and the traffic system works there but somehow she's able to evade them in this high yeah, speed pursuit it was nuts pursuit. It taken was so two was awful awkward it awful. was so awkward i'm looking to see if i if i listed that on my um uh, uh what's it called <laughs> Worst films ever. Letterboxed. Um, letterboxed is what I'm looking for. So I'm trying to uh, find you, out. You, you look it up, and I, I'll just make one more point here. I read in a collection of interviews that Liam Neeson thought when they had finished the original Taken that there was really no way to further the story because it, it, how would it be that Brian Mills it, it gets himself into a situation where either his wife or daughter or both are taken? No again? kidding, right? And he thought that that was too preposterous and too coincidental, and it would make for a horrible story. And apparently, it took a lot of money to convince Liam to come around and to make the Taken 2. Uh, my guess is is that the, he had been worn down by the process, and he figured, well, you know, what the heck? Uh, I've already ruined my good name with my reputation. You know, and The guy is a great actor. The guy can do a lot of great performances. Sure. I like Liam Neeson Absolutely. all through and through. Yeah. So – clearly when it came to taking three they were just like hey well taking two made us money we don't care if it didn't work and if it wasn't uh worth making (laughs) but uh let's make another one 
We, yeah, we're we're inter- we're into it for the money, right, y'all? So I rated Taken Two one and a half stars, and I I certainly liked at least of the three films. Um, it was it was awful. I but to get back to Taken, I, I mean, I felt like Taken, like you said, it had um it had some uh, good messages. Um, it brought awareness to human trafficking, and it had a good story. And who wasn't rooting for Brian Mills, right? I mean, his daughter was was taken, and he was dealing with hot airbag politicians who wouldn't let him do what he needed to do, and they weren't really interested in getting his daughter back, and so. I uh I connected with Taken well enough. Um like I said, I think I I I was before I started using Letterboxd when I saw it. Um but I think I rated it I would rate it like three and a half stars, maybe three. Um Taken Two and I think you're being generous. Yeah, I know. Taken two, one and a half. And so now we come, of course, to Taken Three. And um, to be honest, at first, I kind of liked it. It started out slow, and, and it felt like there was good drama and, and life stuff happening. And I, I appreciated that about the film. It wasn't – whereas the first film – or the, I'm sorry, the second film always felt like it was trying to convince you that it was something it was not. Taken 3 didn't feel that way, at least at first. It didn't feel like it was saying, oh, look, look what a great action spy thriller this is. It was just life stuff that was happening, and I appreciated that about the about the movie. Um, Brian Mills, uh, you know, he he does the inept father thing pretty well, or I should say, Liam Neeson as Brian Mills. Uh, you know, he brings that panda over, and, and you're sitting there going, "She's like 25. What are you doing, Dad?" Um, he he doesn't know what to do with this adult daughter of his, and I I found all of that endearing in a, in a very strange way. Um, and I think that this film did learn from its immediate predecessor, um, that where it, it re- the first film, you know, it had su- successes. And I don't think the, the producers or the writers or anybody really understood what made that first film successful. And that's why the second film was such a drag. Now, now in, in terms of talking about success, though, uh, I do have to point out, um, Taken made $226 million worldwide on a $25 million budget. Taken Two is the highest earner so far in the series at three hundred seventy-six point one million on a forty-five million dollar budget. So that's why we got Taken Three, by the way. <laughs> um, and so I, I think the, the third film, though, did learn some lessons from its predecessor. It kind of got back to its roots. It's like, okay, we don't have to have this crazy revenge thing, vendetta thing with weird villains. Let's just make it a normal, like, this is a situation. Yes, the situation kind of happened because it's Brian Mills and the Lenore's husband knew that. And so he knew that, that you know, basically, here, attack, dog, attack, you know. But it, it didn't really feel trumped up, at least in my opinion. And so that is to this film's credit. There's not a lot of credit to give this film, and I will give it that. What do you think? Uh, what What have you been watching <laughs> that, that your taste is so soured and so lowered to appreciate this film? I didn't I mean, say I appreciated it, but we're we have to. Yeah. I mean, there are, you have to give the film the credit where it's due and it did i think there is some credit to be like i feel like it redeemed itself from that second film slightly joe my star rating is not very high we are going to get to things i didn't like okay it's definitely the film that i've liked the least that i saw in theaters in the past so you like taken two better than this one yeah yeah Hmm. i mean like i mean like i still have my problems with taken two I would say that I'd have given Taken 2 a two-star out of five. Okay. Because um, I I appreciated some things they did between Mr. and Mrs. Mills. And the daughter character improved substantially. She wasn't nearly as just annoyingly teenager 
mm-hmm. like she was in the first film. Brian Mills was still an interesting character that was going through new developments and, and he was exploring new opportunities because obviously the kind of guy he was, the family man that he was, he didn't really want to be separated from his wife. And because in Taken 2, he was trying to save his wife, we got to see new motivations in his character besides you you dare touch my daughter and I'm going to lop you to pieces. Yeah. Um, we, we got to see other motivations for him. In Taken 3, I I didn't like the the motivations for his character nearly as much. See, no, I did, though. I did. Because they took and, and killed his wife. Even if it's his ex-wife, he still loved her. He didn't want to be separated from her, as you pointed out. And, and I got, again, that same sense that I got from the first Taken, which was, this is a man intent on doing what it takes. He, like, he lo- he's doing it for love of his family. I never got that in the second film. The second film just wasn't about that at all. And, and like I said, in the first film where I, I was cheering on Mills to save his daughter, in this film, I am cheering on Mills to avenge the death of his wife, to catch those dirty, rotten, nasty people who did this, that killed his wife, and to, um, and to more than just avenge, like to, to, to save his daughter and to get them off the streets. Um, and, and I never got – I feel like that's where this film, again, excels a little over the second film because I never got that sense from the second film. Okay. I, one other thing that I, I, I mean, like, uh, I, I know we're talking about the mixed bag of our overarching observations. <laughs> um, I, I know we haven't really got to likes and dislikes, the, the specifics, if you will, the details that we liked and disliked, uh, just talking about the overarching appeal or lack thereof again, one time I, I have a problem with the premise because in the first film, the, the premise was, uh, it, it, this uh, highly trained, skillful, you know, crime fighter, uh, his daughter is kidnapped and he will stop at nothing to save his daughter. In the second film, the premise is this highly skillful, trained, you know, operative it will stop at nothing to save his ex-wife, which is saying a lot. In Taken 3, the premise is this highly trained officer loses his ex-wife and he will stop at nothing to save himself. And then in sort of a happenstantial um, stretch of the situation, they, they bring it around at the end of the film to, well, his motivations are to continue to protect his daughter in the future. So he does what he does for the climax in the interest of keeping his daughter safe. But it was, a, it was, um, it kind of came late in the film to really improve the film for me because for a good chunk of the film, it had ruined everything that it had going for it between Mr. and Mrs. Mills. And then Brian was just wasting time trying to clear his own name and save himself. And we knew that he was never going to be caught and locked up and left there forever. So there was no suspense about whether or not Brian was in any kind of real danger. Uh, because his daughter though, wasn't in any significant danger though, for the first half of the film, it, it, it was hard to appreciate that we should be concerned about her. So there was really no reason as a member of the audience to be vested in the story. If we knew there was so, there was so little chance that Brian would not. So, so you don't like to see killers come to justice. Are you kidding me in this way? In this film, 
the way it's it's regaled here this is straight up stuff from television this is like a cop show or castle or you know i mean like in castle is better than this you think much lower of television than i do apparently because i've seen i've definitely seen way better plots than what we saw here in television it depends on the show this is like b minus material from a oh i'd say don't get me wrong joe i'd say this is more like c minus material I'm I'm just uh, you okay. know I'm I I, t- I tend to do my likes and then my dislikes and so I you know if you want to talk about okay. dislikes I've I've got them okay uh, well, I, I I'm I was just talking about the last point of my general overarching observation okay um I I would have to say that I I'm I'm completely flip flop from you in thinking that Brian Mills was working for himself in this film versus the second film where he I felt more of that in the second film where he was just like why do we care. And this film, I felt more like it was not necessarily him out for himself, but it's, you know, it's a difference of opinion, I suppose. Um, I I want to explore the things that we don't like, and there are, there are several. Um, Although, honestly, it's, it's, you know, it's a bad in a way that's kind of hard to talk about, but but there are things, there are things, right? Um, So how does a man uh, like Brian do all the things that he does throughout the course of this film that are highly illegal that are that injure cops that kill cops that kill people that um that cause mayhem and destruction how how does he he you know he most assuredly caused injury and death in that second act uh car chase scene in the second act uh when he hijacked an officer's car and flipped a bunch of trucks and we saw it crushing vehicles on the road uh he fragrant fragrant flagrantly there's the word i'm looking not fragrant but flagrantly broke many many laws uh Frequently too. Yes. How how does how does he get away with that? And then at the end of the film, it's oh well, you know, we could arrest you, but yeah, you know, it's whatever. Yeah. Like, how does that work? This doesn't even make any sense. None of that makes any sense. Like, I never got the impression in either of the other two films that he would wantonly cause destruction. I mean, it happened uh, circumstances out of his control, but he would not wantonly cause destruction and death of other people if he could help it. And in this film. Like, he just causes this massive multi-car... There, there was no way that people didn't die in these things that he did. And you got to wonder, what the heck? Like, this is out of character with Brian Mills, I think. And it was, it was, it was crazy. A lot of the action... Again, this is, the, this is where, again, the second film fell down from the first one. The action made sense, usually, in the first film, and you were able to follow it. And, and yeah. then uh, Olivier Megaton Even got, with a shaky cam, you could. Well, but there wasn't as much shaky cam. And Olivier Megaton uh, got into this, you know, into the director's chair for these, both of these second films, you know, the second and third film. And he just, he loves to shake that camera, and he loves to replace uh, coherent action with incoherent camera shaking. And I've, I'm, I'm not the only one who feels that way. You can read this from a number of critics who say, uh, yeah, basically this guy doesn't know how to do coherent action in any way, shape, or form. And, and you know, you get all of that, and then in this film you've got him just bloodying up and, and killing people, you know, and causing these horrible accidents and hijacking cop cars. It just doesn't make any sense. None of it made any sense. Like the entire scene, why did it exist? What was the point of that entire car pileup except that it was there for the action? Like we, the, the script calls for action, so we're going to have action. Yeah, yeah, that, that was the reason. That was the only good reason. I mean, like the most interesting thing was, oh, look at that. The truck is jackknifing. Oh, that's clearly CGI. Never mind. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was. it's not a really high budget and, film. And but. then let's uh, quickly jump 
forward to later in the film to the other very short-lived car chase when all of a sudden kaboom and the car rolls down the hill and kablooey it blows up and <gasps> brian mills was not killed but how how didn't i mean how, how was he not killed how, how was, was he, he not, killed? not killed literally it was like a bad car chase scene out of an old film where for no apparent reason the guy somehow escapes the car, but you don't see how he's escaped the car. He just did like magic. Well, and the worst part is the worst part is that a megaton thinks that he can get away with it by showing it to us in slow motion. And so the car literally when he goes back to it and Brian Mills is explaining how this works – and how he escaped, it doesn't explain anything. He, the car rolls in front of us. It's really slowly in front of the camera. And then the car rolls out of frame. And there's Brian in the crevice of the hill. But w- how he got there is still a mystery to me. It makes no sense. It's the dumbest thing I've ever seen in any action movie. And I include Michael Bay's Transformers in that assessment. Whoa. Well, oh, okay. I, I may be exaggerating. How <laughs> You might be. <laughs> Just <Okay>. a little. <laughs> My my biggest complaint. Are we are talking about complaints now. Yes, absolutely. Thank, okay, thank you, thank you. Can I just get this one out of the way? Do the it. Editing was atrocious. Really, I didn't the notice that. Film. I noticed that the camera, this the screen would not stay on any particular camera angle for more than like two seconds. Yeah, I, I guess, sure, if, if you want to call that editing, I call that just bad cinematography. But it, I suppose editing had a lot to do with it, and that's it was like that's megaton. But it was like they were not happy with any given take for more than two seconds at a time. That's that's the frenetic pace and, and the frenetic filmmaking that Megaton likes. You yeah, know, they didn't do it that much in the other takens. No, they did it in Taken Two a lot. They did, but not as much. Mm. I mean, it was like the guy is getting worse at this particular quality. But it, frenetic, whatever. I mean, like he's got too many camera angles. He's bouncing around the room and around the people in the room in the wrong ways, so it's think, disjointed and I jarring. I think he put the camera on a rubber ball and just bounced it up and down. Pretty much. Like, <laughs> let's get the three sixty view. Okay, now cut to the one at three o'clock. Now cut to the one at seven o'clock. Now yeah. cut to the one at four o'clock. And now one from the top down and one from the bottom up. You know, it, just, it kept on doing it at about that pace, and so you never really appreciated anything that was going on because, I mean, like, yes, the actors were able to stay in sync with their their voiceovers, uh, or whatever the case may be, so that it felt like it was a complete whole. But your eyeballs were bouncing all over the place. <laughs> the entire film. I mean, it wasn't like, oh, wow, that was one bad scene where that, that one scene was edited poorly. No, it was the whole film. Yeah. Oh, I've not seen bad editing like this in a while. Mm. And I've seen Cloud Atlas. Well, speaking of bad things, let's talk about dumb cops, shall we? And oh, yeah. oh man, the Do epitome, the epitome of dumb cops, I think, is Frank Dotzler, who's supposed to be the super genius. Like they set him up as this thing like in the movie. They gave him all these quirks. They focused on him a lot. He can seemingly focus on nothing but Brian Mills, even though he finds out what happened to Brian Mills before. He knows that he will stop at nothing to save his family. He knows that there's no way this man could have killed his wife. Uh, and, and, and yet, uh, he's just, he's so focused. He can't focus on finding the real killers. He's got to find Brian Mills. It makes no sense. Nothing he does in this film makes any sense. And then finally, at the end, um, of the film, he says, oh, I always knew it couldn't have been you. 
Well, you, but you never, it's, it doesn't make any sense. Like, it never paid off. They've set this, uh, I thought, early in the film, I thought, oh, they're going to set this up as eventually he, the Forrest Whitaker character, Frank Dotzler, is going to come around, and they're going to work together. But it never paid off. Like, nothing that Frank Dotzler did mattered in any way in this film. Am I wrong? No. It was exactly that. And I, I, I was annoyed not only by the performance, but also by the character and how he was portrayed and how much screen time he got. Like, he didn't contribute much. Neither did the rest of the cops in this film. They were all throwaway. Again, they were like, you know, you might have seen them in one episode of a cop show or in CIS or who knows what. But they don't deserve this movie platform. No. No. <sighs> and they were given so much screen time that was... Ultimately just boring because you knew they were just getting in the way of Brian's progress. See, Brian wasn't going to hunt down and kill cops. No. But so much of the film was Brian just evading the cops, which isn't nearly as effective as things that we saw in Taken 1 and 2. But here, he, he his, his you know, large motivation is to figure out who the bad guy is. Are you kidding me? Like... I mean, like something about even the fact that the way in which his wife died felt like a throwaway. You know, one second you're supposed to care about whether or not they might come back together again. But at the same time, you're kind of wondering like, oh, this is really awkward because she's still married. And then the next thing, oh, she's dead on the bed and who cares? (laughs) Oh, no, that's bad news for Brian. Look out, Brian. You're in trouble because your wife is dead. Oh, no. But like for that was so disjointed. Yeah, not, not much of this movie made sense. Speaking of stuff that doesn't make sense, so you need to get in touch with your daughter. You, you Joe, you have a daughter who is the, the Maggie Grace daughter age, whatever. And you need to, <laughs> you're on the you're on the lam and you need to get in touch with her. So what do okay. you do? What do you do, Joe? Well, it seems like you might leave her a note that tells her to feign sickness and meet you in the bathroom at college. But no, that's not good enough for Brian Mills. What Brian Mills has to do is poison her drink so that she gets nauseous. And then she will skip class and you hope she goes to the bathroom you're waiting in. And then so she gets there. She goes to that bathroom and Brian Mills is waiting for her and he has the magic cure that will cure her of this nausea that, that from the poison that he gave her. It just... What? You, what? What? But Brian Mills, being the concerned stalker father that he is, knew which bathroom <laughs> his daughter will always turn to when she feels nauseous. <laughs> right. Just it didn't make any sense. And, and then somehow he got out of the bathroom. Oh, but wait. Parlor trick again. Yeah, no. How thing. did he get out of that bathroom? That was the other thing that bugged me. I forgot to mention this in my review. How did he get out of there? Like it's they're a cheap almost trick on top of it. From bad filmmaking. Like going back to the first Taken again. Say what you will, but one of the surprising great qualities of that film was any time the the hero did anything, you got to see how he did it. Yes. So you were convinced that it was not only plausible, but that he was actually pretty smart. Yes. Whereas in this film. Uh, rather than bother to make it that thoughtful, we're, we're, we we don't need any, a reason. We don't need to show the audience anything. If we want him to fly through the ceiling, we'll just indicate that he flew through the ceiling. But we don't have to show it. Right. Like, that's the only way he could have gotten out of there. Like, And it's it's one of those things where I have a camera that I can turn off and remove Brian Mills from the scene and turn it back on and he's magically not there. And then they'll come in the bathroom and they'll find that he's not there. But there is no way. There is literally no way he could have gotten out of that bathroom without them knowing about it. 
but notice this too. Again, it, it being very inconsistent about how they portray characters and groups in the film, they showed the cops every step of the way, quickly rushing to the college, quickly pulling up, jumping out of their cars, grouping and going through multiple entrances, hunting him down through various hallways, approaching every door and looking through to try and find him, coming upon the right room and opening the door and he's out there. But we got to see that entire progression of the cops and all we see of Brian is he is standing in the bathroom talking to his daughter. He is standing in his bathroom talking to his daughter. He's standing in the bathroom talking to his daughter. He is standing in. Oh, he's not there anymore. Yep. That's it. That's the way this works. Well, you ready to, uh, to wrap it up? I am. I don't have anything else to say. I think that we have. Uh, to be honest, like we have um, indicated no particular likes. So this is one of the reasons why I think that you're, you're, you're giving this film uh, I guess more grace than I, I would give it Just as well. Just a half star more than you. Okay. Okay. That's understandable, I guess. <laughs> I can, can I explain my star rating? Because it's not very often I get to talk about a movie that I've seen and I'm rating that only got this star rating. Please do. Okay. So everyone listening, I'm sure you'll want to know my explanation for what I would call a solid 1.5 out of 5 stars. <laughs> Solid. <laughs> Here is my thinking. It's bad to the point of sad, but, you know, I'm thinking to myself, watching this movie once is a tolerable bit of amusement. And, uh, you know, it's certainly worth it to be on the podcast and discuss it with TJ. So I will watch it on one particular slow, slow weekend out of the year in, you know, the end at the end of January. The thing is, though, if if I had other films to watch, I would not have watched this. Now, I felt, you know, like this is not a good film. It is pathetic. But, it, you know what? There is a side benefit to watching these kinds of films, TJ. And that is, it helps you reappreciate good movies. Sure. It's not so disgusting that you just hate the movie and want to turn it off and get a refund. Mm -hmm. It's just bad enough that you realize, wow, taken... The original was actually so much better than this. It really was. Like, and, and for that reason, you, you can, you know, appreciate other better films. So sometimes exposing yourself to a film like this is satisfying in that it, it, it reflects the, the better qualities of better films. It, it brings those to mind and why you appreciated those films. It's, it makes it, them easier to identify. Yeah. Even though this is, this is a very sorry excuse for entertainment, while while I'm reflecting on the film and I'm thinking about how it's gone awry, I I I I realize that I could have used my time more wisely than watching this. But I'm not the only one who did this, right? They've already made a killer ton. They've already made a lot of money, and it was it was certainly not justifiable. They made two hundred forty four million, <laughs> actually. Yeah. And, and we all give it bad ratings. It, it's it just is, it is the lowest rated on Rotten Tomatoes. Like the last time I looked, uh, the second film was at twenty one percent approval rating from the critics, and this film is at ten percent. While the first film was at fifty eight percent. It was like we were getting. It's like we were getting lunch off of the dollar menu at Taco Bell, or worse yet, McDonald's. Because I kind of yes. like I kind of like Taco Bell. Okay, uh, no comment. <laughs> But yeah, I would definitely Chipotle say it's, better, it's in that category. Yeah, yeah. 
I would say it's in that category where like you're in a hurry and you're going to get something. It kind of tastes like it's cheese. Okay. I'm okay with it. But then, yeah, you go to Chipotle and you're like, oh, this is what's so right about food. And and yeah, you, you understand things much better. I don't know, DJ. I just, um, I, I think that it's, it's, it's a case where it's definitely really poor, but there was no particular thing that was so atrocious that I, I feel disgusted by the film. Like there was no particular one character that was so horrible that I just want to walk out of the theater or wipe the film from my memory. Yeah. 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 No, it, it was just that everything was lame. Everything was lame or underbait cliche or clearly that the that the actors were not vested in what they were trying to tell it was lame and had no crutches uh-huh mm-hmm. <laughs> so, that is a one star sorry 1.5 star film for so me. you rate this Just film disappointing 1.5 bullets as you put in the show outline <laughs> yes well i give this film two bullets or two stars uh, just a half star better than you because i did find some redeeming qualities about it toward the beginning of the film and it really fell apart later um, and I did certainly like it better than Taken 2, although neither of these films certainly gives anywhere near living up to Taken, which was only a mediocre, a slight, maybe slightly better than mediocre film. So I, I really don't understand why this franchise continues to make money. And good gracious, you people went and saw this film, apparently. You gave it this much money. There's going to be a Taken 4 now. What were you thinking? You should have thought about this. You should have thought this through, people. This is not good. So we're going to have to live through this again, and that means we're probably not – you know what? No, we're not even going to review. If there's a Taken 4, we're not going to review it on the Movie Bite Podcast. How about that? <laughs> Thank you. So two stars, and I do not recommend that you see this film. It is stupid, stupid, stupid as it can get. <sighs> IMDb users rate the film 6.2 out of 10. Rotten Tomatoes – I don't know is, what they saw on it. <laughs> uh, yeah, no kidding. Rotten Tomatoes, as I've already mentioned, uh, the critics are at 10% approval rating. However, the audience, uh, only slightly lower on average than IMDb, at 49% approval rating. How do you do that? My mind is blown. Who sees this movie, and who? how do 50% of people in the world that have seen this movie approve of it? I don't get it. I don't get it either, TJ. I don't get it. I'm honestly uh, not understanding the audience this round. No, I, I really don't. Uh, sometimes you can see why. They, that people will not side with the critics, but I don't. In this case, I really don't understand. It's uh, it's, it's it's the movie, the quality of the filmmaking, the quality of the film, the story. None of it is at the level that that would warrant this kind of audience approval. I don't understand. Mm. All right, well, that was our review of Taken Three. Please take it back as uh, <laughs> as we've subtitled the second one as well. We'll we'll borrow that subtitle and use it again. Please take it back. And that's uh, that's pretty much it. So um, next week, we're going to be reviewing Jupiter Ascending. I, I want to believe, Joe, I want to believe that the Wachowskis can give us another good sci-fi film. I doubt if it's in them. I doubt <laughs> if it's going to be a good one. I want it to be good so bad I can taste it, but I have really low expectations going into this, and I hope that I'm pres- pleasantly surprised. How about you? I, I have high hopes, but I, I also I'm, I'm, bearing, I'm embracing myself for the worst. High hopes and low expectations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. I, uh, I, I, I mean, here's the thing. There's some warning signs, such as it being moved to February and all this. It, but, but everything that I've seen, all the clips that I've seen, everything points to this being a really fun sci-fi adventure. Like, I want to believe it's going to be a three and a half or four star film. 
<sighs> we'll see. We'll see. Next week. I'm going to see it this weekend. Hopefully, maybe if I can't see it this weekend on Monday, but certainly before the next episode. Uh, Fizz is probably going to join us for that episode, so that'll be fun. We'll have him back on the show, and uh, we'll nice. uh, the three of us will talk about it. In the meantime, Joe, where can people keep up with you? You've got new podcasts. You've got websites. You've got writing. You've got all kinds of cool stuff. What's, what's going on, man? Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter at underscore Joe Darnell. My website, joedarnell.com. And if you want to check out the other coffee podcast, it is topbrew.fm. All right, and you can follow me on Twitter. I am TJ Draper Pro. You can read my writing on MovieByte at M-O-V-I-E-B-Y-T-E dot com. You can catch the show notes for this episode at moviebyte.com slash mbpodcast slash 125. Of course, if you have most podcast clients these days, even Apple's own podcast client now, which it didn't for a long time, is now pulling the show notes in for you. Uh, we have them in the feed, and so most podcast clients, you can just go right in there and get the show notes. But if you need them on the website, they're there at uh, moviebyte.com slash mbpodcast slash 125. That is also a convenient link for sharing with your friends. If you want to share this episode with them, if you enjoyed our lampooning of this movie that much, you may share this episode with your friends. And we would highly recommend that you do so. And uh, we're looking forward to reviewing Jupiter Ascending one way or another next week. And we will talk to you all then. Thank you, Joe. Thanks, TJ. Good night.